from the book of John, chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. The word of the Lord. Uh, so for those of you that have been with us, uh, we've been uh, in a series over the last several weeks as we've considered who we are as a church, uh, and in particular, what we've been doing is we've been, uh, the first couple of weeks, we took a look at uh, our vision statement, which is to know and show the love of Christ. Uh, and what we've been doing in more recent days is we've been trying to take a look at uh, how we go about accomplishing that by looking at our core values. Uh, now, this week, we look at our final core value. This is the end. Uh, we have no other values except this one. Um, but our final core value is that of unity. Let me read for you uh, our statement on unity, which, uh, again, you can find on our website for all of the different core values. It's simply this, that we are a church that believes God's love breaks down racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, and cultural barriers and brings unity through the power of the gospel. Now, we, we live in a time when division uh, and antagonism is rampant um, and even signals uh, and is no longer, we really no longer see this idea of unity as being something of a virtue. Uh, we live in a culture that often prioritizes identity politics over uh, ironic and unifying dialogue. Uh, we live in a cancel culture uh, that often leads with outrage and cathartic impulses to cut others out or cut them down or to exclude them uh, if they don't measure up to our ideologies or our priorities. Uh, we live in a culture where forgiveness and mercy and humility are less and less seen as virtuous, but rather they're often viewed as weakness or useless in the culture wars. And there are many different ideologies or identity markers that often cause these deep divides. However, what happens when people 
are able to transcend those ideologies and identity markers. And instead, what would happen if in the midst of that kind of culture, we're able to be unified as a community, despite their differences? What kind of power turns enemies into family, all while each member still being able to keep that which keeps them unique? That's what I want to consider with you today. And we're going to do it through John 17. Uh, If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we looked at John 17, which is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's a prayer that Jesus has prayed for all of his followers, including you and I. Uh, Look at verse 20 just quickly. Uh, Not only is Jesus praying for his disciples there at the time of the prayer, but it also says that he is praying for those who would believe in him through their message. So if you're a Christian, that's you. You are who Jesus, you are who Jesus is referring to here. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a follower because at some point you believed the message of the apostles who wrote down this message. It took 2,000 years to get to you, but Jesus is talking about you. And I love the fact that we can read this prayer and hear the words that Jesus has literally prayed for us, for me, for you. But the last time we considered this prayer, uh, we unpacked our core value of community involvement. And what we noted in the prayer was that Jesus desires his church to be a distinct community that is not of the world, but is rather sent into the world. But what's interesting is immediately after Jesus discusses this idea of of his followers being sent into the world, which was verses 13 through 19. Now we hit our passage in uh, verse 20, where he immediately shifts gears to show the posture with which one ought to go as they're sent out into the world. And that posture, he expects his church to embody. And that posture is a posture of unity. And according to Jesus in verse 23, this is, I find this interesting, this is how people will know that his followers actually love him, is the extent to which they are unified. I mean, if I were to ask you, what might be some of the ways that people would know that you are a follower of Jesus? What are some of the things that might come to mind? You know, for some, maybe we would say, well, it's the good things that I do. I'm a good person. Uh, Some might say, well, I never miss a Sunday morning. Maybe that would be the identity marker of one who loves and follows Jesus. But I do wonder how many of us would say unity is the identifying marker. Yet this here is exactly what Jesus is saying. Our witness, Christian, to the world is dependent on our willingness to be in unity with others who also follow Jesus. So, we need to understand this unity that Jesus is talking about because, again, we live in a time when unity is rare and even rejected. So let's understand what Jesus is talking about regarding unity by looking at the nature of the unity, the challenge of unity, And then finally, the power for unity, right? First, the nature of unity. Um, If we were to consider what is needed to find unity, 
what might be some of the ingredients that you would think of? I, I think it's safe to say that most people implicitly believe that unity requires uniformity. In other words, in order to find a sense of unity amongst others, people need to conform. And while in, in some ways that might be true, within Christian community, there's a lot more nuance than that. In fact, unity in the midst of diversity is at the very core, the very nature of Christian community. Christian community is unity in the midst of diversity because, as Jesus has noted here in our passage, unity in diversity is the very nature of God himself. Look at verse 21 and 22. Jesus prays this. He says, Father, just as you, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. That verse, I feel like you could do a whole series uh, on that one verse there. My goodness, there's so much to unpack. Um, <laughs> one of the things, this is not where we're going, this is not the point, but at least should be noted, this is one of the places, the high priestly prayer, when one, you cannot deny that Jesus unequivocally references himself as deity. It's one of the places. Jesus declares himself to be God all throughout this passage. At some point, we'll unpack that more. Uh, but Jesus also understands that Christian unity is to be fundamentally related to and interwoven in the, the unity that's found between himself and the Father. Now, while we could not possibly all, all uh, unpack all of the implications of that, what needs to be said is simply this, that the nature and the substance of Christian unity is the Trinity. Now, within Christian theology, the Trinity is one of the most perplexing uh, claims of the Christian faith. Uh, earlier this week, as my wife and I were talking about this, she highly recommends uh, this book uh, that she'd been reading called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. Uh, it's a complex subject. Uh, the book is uh, accessible in trying to understand this very complex subject. But this is central to Christian theology. Essentially, it's this, that there is one God... Deuteronomy 6.4 says that the Lord our God, the Lord is one, there is one God. And yet scripture is explicit about this three-in-one nature, that he is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And within that unified self exists perfect, complementary harmony, but not uniformity. In that they are distinct persons with distinct roles. And this is most evident, I think, in what is called the missio dei or the mission of God, the idea that God is a sending missionary God, that the Father sends the Son, the Son completes a great work to accomplish regeneration and conversion and justification and adoption and so on, and that the Son then sends the Spirit to apply that great work and to empower the redeemed to persevere unto the end, this triune God is perfectly aligned and in harmony around that mission. Yet, despite that perfect unity, they are distinct and contribute different, differently to that mission. 
This is extraordinarily important for us to understand when we're looking at what Jesus is praying for here in John 17, because similarly, Jesus is praying that his disciples experience unity, a unity that, like the Trinity, centers around mission. I mean, remember what Jesus had just been praying moments before. He was praying that his disciples would be sent out into the world. That was their mission. And yet, unity is not, again, uniformity, but rather in the midst of committing to that mission of being sent, his followers are going to take on different roles. Now, this is the exact idea that Paul is getting to in 1 Corinthians 12. If you know that passage, Paul is talking about the body. And he's talking about different parts of the body and how the body is made up of different pieces, all of which, when together, help that body to function well. Extraordinarily different parts come together in the midst of that diversity to ensure that everything functions well, that things are alive. Uh, And if you were to think about that analogy, think about the way that Paul describes the body. If I were to ask you what part of the body you'd be willing to give up, what would you say? Think of one. If you had to give up a body part, what would you say? I often joke, um, especially this time of year, that I would give a pinky toe to eat whatever I want without consequence. Um, It's just that time of year. However... In my mind, that seems like the most insignificance of body parts to lose, and I can only imagine what that inevitably would do to my, the rest of my body by rejecting it as being important because we, we really would like to assume that there are certain parts of the body that aren't important, but as soon as I lose that pinky toe, the rest of my body is inevitably going to be out of balance. Or to think about it maybe even this way, um, have, you ever, have you ever slept wrong have you ever uh, slept on your neck wrong, neck wrong? You wake up, you got that crick in your neck. It's amazing how that affects the whole rest of your body, like the entire day. It's amazing how it disorients the entire body by having this one part of the body that goes down and it's not at full capacity. Uh, it's important to understand that every part of the body has a particular role, and if that role is not fulfilled, things go bad. I think another really great biblical example of how this diversity, our unity in the midst of diversity thing works is, of course, marriage. You know, in Genesis 2, God establishes marriage, that, man, that marriage is to be a man and a woman that come together as one flesh, it says, that there are two people who are very different that are now made one. Uh, my wife and I uh, could not be more different in uh, a lot of ways. Um, for example, if you'd like to know some examples. Um, I'm a pretty high extrovert. She has a pretty high introvert, though you probably wouldn't know it if you know her. She's a pretty high-functioning introvert. Um, I was just joking with, a, I was joking with a pastor friend the other day, and my wife and I joke about this as well. Uh, introverts and extroverts hear the statement, let's get ready for the party very differently. Uh, <laughs> extroverts, when you hear that, you think, oh, let's, let's dress ourselves up. Um, introverts, you think, oh, let's psych ourselves up for the party. Um, if you're an introvert, you know what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> my wife and I, she also tends to be the one who thinks through every, every decision is made with an enormous amount of intentionality. She processes everything to death before making a decision. I, on the other hand, eh, 
Just kind of go with the flow. See what feels good in the moment. But what's interesting about this is that those differences make us better, actually, together. They make us better for each other. Uh, thank Jesus and thank your pastor's wife for your pastor. Because there's so many ways that that has made me better. Because our differences in the midst of unity make us better. I draw all of this out just to emphasize the point. That Jesus wants his followers to be rooted in this triune God idea that there is unity in the midst of diversity and that when the church, when Christians are brought together in unity, the world catches a glimpse of God himself in the midst of that unity. That, of course, though, leads me to the problem, which is that that's really hard to do. Unity in the midst of diversity is hard. And this brings us to the challenge of unity You know, it's wonderful to say that unity exists when different people come together, when they function as one. However, we all know that that kind of unity is very difficult to accomplish. Uh, In Paul's language, uh, it is easier, it's so often easier for ears to hang out with ears and feet to hang out with feet than it is for ears and feet to hang out together. Maybe to get a little less hypothetical, a little bit more concrete, it's easier for the wealthy to hang out with the wealthy. It is easier for those with cultural similarities to hang out with those with similar cultural similarities. It's easier for Democrats to be with Democrats and Republicans to be with Republicans. Name any affinity group that you could possibly imagine. It's easier for those groups of people to be together instead of trying to come together with those who are very, that are very different than themselves. And this is how the world functions. The world functions in these segmented, walled-off silos that bar anyone that's not like them. Of course, we know this to be the, the case also in the church. But with, with that in mind, there are a couple things to say about unity. The first is simply this. That there is a difference between what is true about Christian unity and what will be true about Christian unity. And what I mean by that is this. So in one sense, Christians are already completely and perfectly unified as they are all one in Christ. We see this over and over in the New Testament that uh, Ephesians 2 speaks of how the walls of hostility have been torn down, uh, that Christ has made peace. Romans 6 speaks of how Christians uh, have been baptized into Christ, making them one. Galatians 3 says that there's no longer, there's uh, Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, no male, nor female, that we are all one in Christ. Of course, as we've already said in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul speaks of there being one body. And so in one sense, Christian unity is done. It's completed for those in Christ. But there's also the reality that there, something isn't quite done yet. There's something that's missing. And like every other aspect of the Christian faith, there's also a unity that is to one day come for the Christians. And we see this all throughout. All different kinds of ideas, biblical ideas and truths exist where there's something that's happened, but there's also something to come. The idea that God's kingdom has come, but the kingdom is also coming. Interesting dissonance there. For his people, Christ has taken the consequence of sin on the cross, and yet 
we still suffer under the consequences of sin. That God is our healer, and Christ has taken our sickness, and yet we still get sick. There's the resurrection where Christ has defeated death, and yet we will all still die. There is a dissonance that's there. Now, in theological terms, theologians have a concept called the already not yet, which is the idea that there are things that have happened already, but there are also things that have not yet come. There are great truths about what Jesus has done, and while those are true, our experience of them is not complete until one day when he returns. And Christian unity is no different. It's important to know that Christians are already unified as one people, one body, perfectly and completely. And as a result, we are together as the church. Yet our experience of that unity is not fully complete as we must still fight that which will inevitably divide us if we allow it. And this, of course, like all aspects of Christian living, it's hard, it's unpleasant at times, and the lack of unity is often the result of something other than Christ being our functional foundation. I mean, why are divisions so normative, even amongst Christians? I mean, think about all the different things that divide even the church. The church too often is divided by political parties or racial categorization or socioeconomic status or particular theological persuasions. Why do these divisions exist where Christ says there should be unity? Well, sometimes those divisions come as the result of extreme errors that just cannot be reconciled. And I think it's at, worth, at least worth noting that. You know, if one denies the Trinity, it will be impossible to have true Christian unity with them. Or if a person is just not safe physically, emotionally, spiritually, unity can be very difficult with a person. But... Even though that is the case, most of our divisions are a consequence of something that began all the way back at the beginning of time. Specifically this, that man, since the fall in Genesis 3, has wanted to be superior. We have wanted to be superior to God. We've wanted to be superior to others. And if we are honest, we kind of like the divisions that we have with one another because it inevitably makes us feel better than those on the other side. You know, it's, it, it feels good to be able to say, oh, you know, I would never be like those Republicans because they are so... Or I would never be like one of those Democrats because they are so whatever. It makes us feel good. There's a sense of superiority that we have. I would rather be with people in my own socioeconomic category or cultural category because that other group can be so whatever. There's a bit of a superiority that comes up. So often, the divisions that exist between us that cause us from being unified is because one party or both parties feel better, smarter, more right than the other. But of course, you know, when I say it that way, it's, it can be a little confronting and it can be a little bit jarring. 
I don't think of myself as being superior to others. And yet functionally, that's why these divisions so often exist. And who are we to assume ourselves better or smarter? But here's the key, that the Christian faith is rooted in a man who had all power and all glory and all riches. He was truly better than everyone else. And while he stood firm on truth and the word of God, Jesus humbles himself and gives himself for our sake. And when we forget that, when we forget what it has taken for us to be welcomed and brought into unity with Christ, we become arrogant and we sow the seeds of division to the extent that we remember Christ's humility is the basis for our welcome with him is also the extent to which we will experience unity amongst each other. Which means that seeing a humble Jesus working for us also results, should result in us experiencing a lifestyle of not arrogance, but humility. And that humility is hard and it's costly. Uh, Thabiti Antebuele, who's uh, a writer and also a pastor in the D.C. area, he, he was speaking on this idea of humility and the necessity of it, and he was uh, referencing issues of justice, but I, his words are applicable, certainly brought more broadly than just that one topic. Um, the passage, or his quote, is there in the uh, reflection section of your bulletin. Uh, I'm going to read it for us. Uh, you should have it there in front of you. Uh, And then I want to unpack a few things that he says there about this idea of humility. Let me read it for us. He says, If there is to be a fuller experience of unity, the cost will include humbling ourselves beneath God's entire word, humbling ourselves to fellowship with brethren on all sides of an issue, humbling ourselves to tell the truth without varnish, humbling ourselves long enough to listen and consider before responding, humbling ourselves to say, I was wrong, or you were right, or please forgive me, or I don't know that, and humbling ourselves to forgive. Because without humility, there will be too much pride for true practical unity. Humility, that's the cost of unity. Is it too high a cost? My goodness, he says a lot in there. And I want to draw out a few specific things that he says. One of the things that he says is that unity requires humbling ourselves beneath God's entire word. Now, true humility cannot happen unless people are willing to submit to the same authority. It just can't. And so submission to God's word is key. But the other things that he says is he says that humbling ourselves to fellowship with brethren on all sides. I wonder, do we seek relationships with others who are very different than ourselves? He goes on to say that humbling ourselves to tell the truth without varnish. You know, true unity cannot happen without truth-telling. Uh, I find this especially to be true in the context of relationships that need reconciliation. Uh, Reconciliation is not possible 
if all parties involved are not willing to deal honestly with the reason for that relational brokenness. Uh, He goes on to say that humbling ourselves, we need to humble ourselves long enough to listen and consider before responding. That one I find interesting. In a time where debate and conversation happens uh, in sound bites and in tweets, uh, really listening to each other is a bit of a lost virtue. He goes on to say that we need to humble ourselves to say, I was wrong, or to say, you were right, or to say, please forgive me, or I don't know that. Uh, I don't think I need to say too much about that one. We all know it can be very difficult to say, I was wrong, please forgive me, to people, especially people to whom we disagree or that otherwise we might be divided from. And then he goes, the last thing he says that unity requires humbling ourselves to forgive. As broken, fallen people, we are always going to hurt one another in Christian unity requires forgiveness because without it, the divisions remain deep. You know, if apply these things, you know, we're talking about Christian community within the church, but apply these things across the board. <laughs> you know, if you, if you want a good marriage, if you want deep friendships, if you want that Christian community that proves that we are followers of Jesus, that list is a great list to consider. This is the cost of unity, humility. And as he asks, I wonder, is that cost too high for us most days? You know, I would say uh, that left to my own devices, yes, for sure. To do that, especially with people that I would normally be divided from, yes, that cost is too high. Which is why so often unity does not exist. We don't possess it within ourselves to accomplish such a feat. We just don't. So how then do we accomplish it? How does this actually happen, what Jesus is praying for? Well, this leads to the final point. The power needed to defeat the substance of division, the power needed for unity. Uh, In his prayer, Jesus, he, he notes something that I find to be intriguing. He does not just say that unity is what he desires to see, but he also shows us the way in which we should expect it to happen. Look at verse 26. It says, it gives, uh, in this, this verse gives us a clue on how this is to be accomplished. This is what it says. It says, I have made you known to them. This is Jesus speaking to the Father. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. Now, did you catch what Jesus said? He said, listen, I have made you known to them. That's what he's been doing with his followers for these last, uh, you know, about three years of his ministry. He's been making them, making the Father known to them. But then he goes on to say, he says, I will continue to make them, make you known to them. So that the Father's love for Jesus might be known to them. So that they might know that Jesus is in them. That's the basis for the unity that he's talking about. But what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus will continue to make it known to them? Now, if you recall, immediately following this prayer, we have Jesus embarking on his final days. 
he's going to be heading to the cross. Uh, And so how is it exactly that he's going to continue to make the Father known to his disciples when soon he would die, and then soon he would be returning back to the Father? I mean, remember, Jesus is not just praying this prayer for his disciples. He's praying it for us as well. How is Jesus going to make the Father's known continually available to us? What is he referencing? Well, back in chapter 16, part of this time that he's spending with his disciples in the final days, Jesus tells his disciples that it's better for him to not stay and it's better for him to go. And this is the reason why he says that's true. In verse 7, he says, But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He then goes on to say in verse 13, But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what, I, what he hears from me. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is making it clear that God's love will be made known to us. The Father's love will be made known to us by the work and the power of the Spirit that unites us to him by faith. Romans 8 tells us that the power of the Spirit raised Christ from the dead and that that same Spirit unifies us to Jesus, which is the same Spirit which makes it possible for us to see Christian community right now. And this, all, this applies to all aspects of life. Of course, we're talking here about unity. But know that the Spirit of God makes the resurrected Christ alive in you. That there are some things that we will only experience fully when one day he returns, but we can experience degrees of what is to come as the Spirit of God works in us and works through us. And so I want us to know to not ever believe that we are ever left alone in this life, to not ever believe that we can accomplish all that God desires for us on our own, to not ever believe that we are so divided and fractured that we could never be brought together in unity, and to never, and to believe that because of what Christ has done by sending his spirit, we are unified together as a people. You know, in Acts 1, Jesus tells his disciples that they will receive power and that they'll receive power to be his witnesses. I think John 17 is a very similar idea, that the Spirit is given to God's people to be unified again around mission because when that unity occurs, it becomes a powerful testament to the rest of the world of what God has accomplished. And so may we trust the words of Jesus that he has sent his spirit to give us power to live in unity, that the world might know the love of God. Let's pray.